all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 336 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the American Golf Ball Dimple episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that the number of dimples on an American golf ball just happens to be 336. And with that wonderful little bit of long way down dimpled American golf ball knowledge, I have of course, I'm Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim, who knows nothing about the dimples on his golf balls until now, or I should say, there who knew go. nothing about the dimples on his golf balls until now. Did you know anything <laughs> about the dimples on your balls until you did your research for the show opening? Well, I am always fondling. To make sure that the balls are proper and in check and everything's good to go. I, I believe that, uh, that's something that you should always do. And if you find dimples on your testicles, you probably should go see a doctor. Yes, I would imagine anything that feels out of the ordinary, you should probably get that checked out. Yeah, you should never feel down there and be like, oh yeah, these are feeling like a couple, uh, Oh, what's a popular golf ball? <laughs> These feel like a couple Titleists. There you go, yeah. Ping, I think, is one. Peen? Ping. P-I-N-G. Oh. Yeah, Not I got like nothing ping, else. Uh, which is like a <laughs> penis. <laughs> ping! <laughs> How the hell are you, sir? I'm good. I'm ready to dance. Aren't we all? After watching That's Dancing... Uh, I I went out and joined the Fred Astaire Dancing Academy. They kicked me out after 10 minutes. Oh. (laughs) I actually don't know if we have one around here or not. You do? Yeah, there's one in Houston. Well, I mean, I know there's some in Houston, but I'm just trying to think of how nearby they are. You know, he actually only owned that for like 10 years or something, and then he ended up selling it, but they kept the name. Really? Yeah. Was pretty, it he who opened it, or was it, like, his estate that opened it? No, 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 no. Like, he actually... That's what I was saying. He actually had it opened for... Oh, hang on. Let's see here. Yeah, 1947. company was co-founded by Astaire, along with Charles and Chester uh, Casanave, in 1947. But he divested his interest in the chain in 1966 while agreeing the continued use of his name by the franchise. There you go. And apparently there are 140 Fred Astaire Studios in the United States right now. So there's that. And you never hear of them. So you kind of wonder, like, are they at the forefront of tap dancing academies? Or are they just there for the name? Or Yeah, I presume it's just name recognition. Um, you know, my parents did one. They, they went there a couple of years ago just for kind of, you know, just for something fun to do for a couple months. So they signed up for like... I want to say they signed up for like 12 lessons or something. So, I mean, it's, you know, once a week they'd go in there and spend like an hour or something like that. And they, I mean, they had a lot of fun with it. And they, I want to say they learned like six different dances or something like that. They would spend like two weeks on a dance and then move to the next one. And they had like little balls and stuff that, that once a month they'd have like a, a dance, uh, a dance ball or something like that. And, um, Anybody who was currently enrolled could go and, you know, have fun. And so they, they went, I mean, they, they had a lot of fun with it. 
I, I don't know that they kept doing it beyond that uh, time period that they signed up for, but people still do it, I guess. Anyway, so since we are talking about that's dancing, uh, sh- should we maybe let the people know a little bit about it? I think so. That might be smart. <laughs> then here we go, folks. The heart, the beat, to start, the beat. Dancing onto the screen to celebrate the new year are the movie's greatest movers and shakers. That's Dancing, the showcase for musical showstoppers from the Busby Berkeley Spectaculars to the driving beat of Michael Jackson. That's Dancing, that's Dancing. Start and you stop or leave it through the Dancing, a 1985 American documentary film. This one, of course, produced by MGM. And was all of the ones in this series have been. But they specifically focused on dancing. They were kind of hoping that they could, much like the That's Entertainment uh, franchise, they wanted to actually make it its own uh, set of movies and its own ongoing series. And so that's why they called this one That's Dancing. It was focusing on the history of dance and in in movies and entertainment as a whole. And so that was kind of their idea. Gene Kelly was involved with this one. Uh, of course, it was directed by Jack Haley Jr. And interestingly enough, produced by Jack Haley and David Niven Jr., which is pretty cool. Um, and, and basically literally takes you through the history of dance from the opening of the studio all the way up until, uh, even showcasing the newest artists of the day for 1985. People like this up and coming choreographer, singer, songwriter, dancer named Michael Jackson. <laughs> and who I think he'll go places. Yeah. Someday. They think he's got a bright future ahead of him. What a nice guy. Honestly, all in, this is my favorite movie of the series. I was, re- I, I was talking with Tim a little bit about it beforehand, but then when I went to actually check the scores and, uh, you know, our little ratings that we've been doing for him and everything, I know we haven't really focused on them primarily as regular, um, regular reviews, but we have kind of tossed our ratings out there. Th- this one actually has the highest rating of, of all four of these films. And I think the reason why is because, yes, you get your, you know, the usual suspects show up. You get your Gene Kelly, you get your Fred Astaire. But because they actually focused on the entirety of dance throughout the golden age of Hollywood, you got to see what caused people like Gene Kelly to burst onto the scene. What caused Fred Astaire to really have what 
to, to really have the magnetism that he had and where that work ethic came from. They focused on all sorts of different dancers, dance troops, dance groups, the cinematography that was done. I mean, uh, how they almost gave up on it until Busby Berkeley came out. And he completely reinvented the way that we even understand what a musical is. And you have, and so just the, just the visuals, the pure visual standpoint of it. And to think that this was happening in the late twenties and early thirties, um, when there, it was all practical effects. They had to come up with this, uh, on their own. And, um, oh, good Lord. What is her name? I can't think of it. And I always feel bad because I can't. Who? Not Ann Miller. Eleanor Powell. Eleanor oh, Powell. The tap dancer. Yes. And they have this one sequence that Eleanor Powell does where they literally follow her from the beginning of her dance routine all the way, and they are literally pulling the stages out so the camera can follow her uh, on its crane and the dolly and everything. And they have a side-by-side setup so that you can see the routine as it's filmed, and then they actually had a camera up in the rafters where you can see them pulling the stages away as she's moving through and doing all of this stuff. And it was one continuous take. It was unbelievable how they shot this stuff. And, I mean, just how mind-blowing these routines were and everything. And it was so cool to see all of this kind of stuff. And yes, and so again, like, you you got to see Eleanor Powell in all of these movies, uh, but not to this degree and not to the extent that you really got to see not just the showmanship, but the workmanship that goes into this kind of stuff. And so I was just completely blown away because you got such a wide variety of dance, dance styles, dance numbers, films, and not just the usual suspects over and over and over again. Um, this one is... Great. Not to mention, you also get different presenters. You have Sammy Davis Jr. is in here. Mikhail Baryshnikov is in this one. I mean, it, it's great. And and they really do kind of make it as mythical as they possibly can. Show you know, with Gene Kelly doing the voiceover narration at the beginning, and it's like from the beginning of time, before we had the written word, before there was communication, there was dance. Cave drawings. and I mean, it literally starts out and you've got all these different kind of tribal dances happening. And then it kind of morphs into the late 1800s and then into the 20th century. And uh, and then, boom, that's dancing, right? I mean, it's just amazing. Every single aspect of this film, I think, really and truly showcases not just MGM, but the true history of of dancing in the movies. And yes, while it does primarily work against the backdrop of MGM, you already know that this is the kind of stuff that was happening at all the other studios. And it was just such a great take on it that I think is a shame, and I know, Tim, you will probably already know this as well, that dancing was falling out 
of the mainstream in the 80s when this movie came out. It was not something that was big and happening in the entertainment world that people were that, that was evolving in movies in TV. Yes, of course there's always Broadway. Yes, of course there's always dance clubs. There are always dance clubs. And there's always different kinds of dance that would that would happen and people would go to dances and you've got your high schools and all that kind of stuff. So dance existed. But it was not, it was falling away from the consciousness, especially in terms of pop culture. And I think that it, in essence, that is kind of what killed this franchise before it could ever get going. I don't know, Tim, I, I've been going on here forever. So what, what do you think, man? Where, where are you at on this? I thought they did a pretty good job at acknowledging the evolution of popular dancing. It definitely starts off with tribal dancing, and I really like how Gene Kelly sets the tone with his narration, like what you were saying, Matt. And then he goes into that horrible That's Dancing song that I just really don't like. <laughs> it's, it's bad. It's really bad. That's Entertainment was fun and glitzy and whatever. That's Dancing is like the Lifetime movie version of a title song. It's just not that great. But then Gene Kelly takes you to the streets where breakdancing is coming about. The new, young, still maturing, popular dance that is that is breakdancing. And the movie, what I really liked about it is that it was very historical and it felt like it was trying to document dancing over time. And that is something that the other films really don't do since they focus on entertainment in a broader sense. This film focuses on dancing and the different styles of dancing, but still under that that's entertainment umbrella, I suppose. So it doesn't throw out a whole lot of information to the audience. You know, it's not a teaching tool. It's not trying to be a teaching tool, just somewhat informative, but overall entertaining. I don't knock this movie at all for doing that because at least it's trying to inform us uh, about the history of certain moves and the current state that it's in right now. Because during the 80s, especially the 70s with disco, urban dancing, dancing is shifting. I mean, they even acknowledge MTV in this documentary. People are less interested in seeing dancing at the movie theater because let's face it, the 60s pretty much killed the movie musical. I think Dr. Doolittle was like the last big, with Rex Harrison, was like the last big uh, movie musical. And that movie flopped at the theater because it was old-fashioned. People didn't want to see old-fashioned movie musicals, old-school dancing, because that's what their parents liked. That's what their grandparents liked. No, man, kids these days, kids in the late 70s, 80s, they want something hip and fresh. And that's what breakdancing was. At a time, a short period of time, that's what disco was. Whatever the hell you consider flash dance to be. Improvised gymnastic striptease, I guess you can call flash dance that. But I, I really appreciated this film acknowledging that type of dancing that has become the mainstream go-to uh, dancing in popular culture in 1986, at least, or 1985 when the movie was made. That was something I wasn't expecting 
with this film. I didn't realize it was going to, in its own way, be hip and openly acknowledge the current state of dancing and acknowledge it in such a not demeaning way. Unlike how Ann Miller probably would have <laughs> probably spoken about breakdancing, you know, at that time, since she never left the 1940s, it seemed like. But that's dancing covers a lot of fascinating things. Um, the birth of the first sound movie musical was a period in movie history often referred to as the Stone Age era. <laughs> that was a time when sound was brand new. The choreography in these films was second rate, and the chorus girls featured in said musicals were very plain and regular-looking women. They were very plump, which a lot of us don't consider that a faux pas, but at the time, people didn't want to see regular people on the movie screen. They wanted to see something more fantastical, something that they're not used to seeing in real life. So movie musicals during the Stone Age of movie dancing weren't really that popular, and the dancing wasn't good either. Uh, the very first dancers ever captured on film came from vaudeville, burlesque, and stage musicals. During the pre-code era, you saw a lot of the sexier burlesque and vaudeville routines being what was captured on film and showed in the movie theaters. So that is what people were very much exposed to. The idea of going to a movie theater to see a film was a very niche thing. So they were trying to capture what people saw in vaudeville shows, in burlesque shows, which were very popular. But people didn't want to take their kids to go see those shows. Families couldn't go. Women especially didn't want to see these type of films. During the pre-code era, there was just an interesting mixture of raunchified and not raunchified goodness that was still finding its way or trying to find its way. Ernest Lubitsch's 1926 silent film, So This Is Paris, turned out to be one of the first films to feature a major dance scene. Again, it was a 1926 silent film, but when you watch the clip featured in That's Dancing, man, that looked like the craziest party that was happening on screen. When you watch that clip, you want to hear what is going on. Because you want to experience it right along with the people that you're watching on the screen. But like what you were saying, Matt, Busby Berkeley did revolutionize the movie musical. He was the one that came in and changed things up. He demanded only the use of beautiful chorus girls, and he demanded plenty of close-ups of said chorus girls so they could be seen by the audience. And these weren't sexy, erotic chorus girls. No, they're beautifully dressed. You don't see a whole lot of cleavage, but you do see a lot of leg. Uh, Busby Berkeley took the camera at this time to new and exciting places, places where the camera has never been before. His trademark shot is the overhead shot, and his choreography consisted of the staging of various shapes. And the cool effect, when he would shoot from overhead, from above, all these different shapes, he would create a kaleidoscope effect. It was just super impressive. I mean, people would flock to the theater to specifically see these crazy dance numbers. 
and this was in black and white. Imagine what Busby Berkeley could have done with these dance numbers if they were in color. And he didn't only make one or two memorable films featuring these awesome dance numbers, he made a whole slew of films in different types of musicals as well. Some of them were a bit smaller, some of them higher end, higher class, lower class. I mean, he was just kind of all over the place. But regardless of the type of film and who he was shooting, he always kept it interesting, visually. In 1933, Busby Berkeley made 42nd Street, uh, which starred Ruby Keeler, and she is somebody that you never hear of anymore, and I'm so glad that's dancing talked about her for a brief moment. Ruby Keeler would go on to become the first great dancing star of the 1930s, and that film, 42nd Street, became a much-needed box office success. At this time, movie musicals weren't doing well at all at the box office. Not only did Busby Berkeley's 42nd Street launch a long line of backstage musicals, which is, believe it or not, a musical subgenre that was popular in the uh, mid to late 1930s and the 1940s and even the 1950s. I mean, look at White Christmas, for example, or Holiday Inn. But this film proved to the studio that audiences were actually interested in movie musicals when they are done right. Because of this... A lot of movie musicals started playing around with different things, and not just with its choreography, but stylistic choices. The film The Gold Diggers in 1935, what I thought was really cool, uh, I've never actually saw the movie. I def- I've seen clips of the, of the featured dance number from The Gold Diggers of 1935, but it featured like neon lights that were attached to the dancers, and then attached on to the musical instruments, like violins. There would be a moment when you're watching, you see people playing the violin, and then the lights will go out, and you just see the violins illuminated by neon lights. And it's cool, because it's not just one violin. It's a lot of violins. And it's just not one person wearing neon lights. It's more than one person wearing a neon light costume. So it was just really cool to see how they were, where they were willing to take films stylistically at that time, because it was a new medium, and people were willing to take chances. As the documentary goes on, and you become more in tune with the types of talent that come to the forefront, and we're not just talking about tap dancers, but jazz dancers as well, a lot of these movies focus on their choreography and the person performing that choreography. You don't really see a lot of like cool Busby Berkeley style visuals like you would have seen in the mid to late 30s. Matt, did you notice anything like that at all when you were watching this? How for these movie musicals, they would focus more on the stars and the type of choreography those stars were comfortable with or those stars were associated with than the filmmakers actually playing around with more of a visual approach to capturing those dance numbers well to a certain extent yes to a certain extent um yes but with their resident geniuses fred astaire and gene kelly they were always working on different ways to push the envelope and pull from other different kinds of dance 
and other influences, and many times, especially in the case of Gene Kelly, he did all the choreography. He even ended up, by the end of his tenure at just MGM, forget anywhere else he was going, he was getting partial director credits and stuff because he was doing all the choreography and directing all the dance scenes. Um, so, to that extent, yes, I, I mean especially in the earlier days, but in the later, in the later ways, it seemed like there was so much work being done by the dancers themselves that it ended up just becoming a natural part of the flow for the project itself. So, uh, or any project that the dancer was working on, but something that you mentioned before that I wanted to touch on was, uh, because they, I, I can't remember if it was, that's entertainment or that's entertainment part two. Um, but in that's dancing, they do, they mention the heaviness. I use air quotes here, the heaviness of the girls, uh, early on. And I'm like, they're treating these women like they're Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> like they're just normal looking women. They weren't, they weren't stick figures. Right. Yeah, exactly. But, but they were not, they weren't even what you would refer to as buxom, right? Like, Marilyn Monroe, that would be a woman you could consider buxom from the, from the time period, you know, the fifties, forties, fifties, right? Um, and so that would be buxom. A little plump, pleasantly plump, pleasing, still beautiful, right? These women wouldn't have even fallen into that category. They just, I mean, if, if the worst you could say is, I guess they were kind of frumpy, but even then, I think that was just as much hair and makeup of the twenties, along with the clothing they were wearing, <laughs> versus them being fat. And Gene Kelly, I guess, just could not stand anything more than, an, you know, than than one percent body fat. I suppose. I I don't know. It was weird. Uh, I just thought that was something that was funny because they harped on it, and I'm like, guys, these are not. These are not fat women. They're not even Rubenesque. <laughs> They're just kind of normal looking. Unless they made a point not to film any of them. That's why they had no footage to pull from. I guess it's entirely possible. Uh, yeah, maybe we can find the long lost film of the buxom chorus girls from the 1920s. <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I definitely see where you're coming from. But I, I guess because... MGM was so fortunate in their choreo in the choreographers that they had. Not to mention, you know, the, I mean, they obviously they had uh, Vincent Minnelli as well. So I mean, they just had and and uh, Bugsby Berkeley. Uh, they had these really key people who were involved in multiple facets, either in front of and or behind the camera. That I mean, there, there's a reason why. MGM just kept putting these things out and pushing this material out for so long. I mean, it worked for damn near 30 years, really 30, 35 years before you could say that the it was truly the end of the golden age of Hollywood. So I, I mean, I, I can see... I can see that, yes, sometimes they would just play to the people's strengths, but then again, you also have to remember that it didn't matter if you had natural talent in dancing, you were going to be a dancer whether you liked it or not. And so 
just like with that's entertainment that i mean clark gable had to dance and anybody else lucille ball who turned out to be someone who could do some dancing and stuff like that which is someone who's also showcased in uh in next week's episode for that's entertainment three uh so i mean sometimes you do get lucky with that but yeah i think that when they did play to their strengths it's just because they were i guess you could say weaker dancers overall but stronger dancers were always doing cool stuff anyway I mean, there's a lot of really impressive stuff that this movie touches on. I love ver- almost every single one of the dance numbers featured in this film. Uh, like the Nicholas Brothers, um, an amazing tap routine. The I've Only Had Eyes For You song from Dames, where you see the lady, she's every single freaking person, every single woman featured in that song looks just like her. So they were, how they were able to achieve that. I would think some of it had to be a a mirror effect to get her looks exactly the same on every single one of those bodies. Absolutely wonderful, wonderful scene to see with the little context behind it. The movie also touches on Marge and Goward champion who ended up being uh, the last of the great dancing duos in film But it also touches on Ray Bulger, and they show a deleted scene from, well, I guess, the removed second half of his Scarecrow song, If I Only Had a Brain, because a lot of people don't realize this, but Ray Bulger was a very good dancer. I know of a lot of people who have seen the deleted second half of If I Only Had a Brain, and Nobody has ever told me that they absolutely loved that second half. But Robert Osborne, who, for TCM, gives his little spiel at the beginning of the movie, has some very nice things to say about it. And the commentators, I don't remember if it was Ray Bolger or somebody else, was talking about uh, this deleted nugget. And they seem to thoroughly enjoy it. And, I, I mean, Matt, do you think it's uh, it's a sorely missed piece of Wizard of Oz history or is it kind of or do you think it's actually kind of good that they removed it because personally I didn't care for it same I don't see I mean it's cool to see another piece of Wizard of Oz of the film that has been lost but it's kind of sloppy not kind of sloppy it's actually very sloppy well and I think that um this kind of goes to the fatal flaw of watching these movies of this really of this whole series now, because while there is still an absolute true value in them from just kind of learning about the history of the musicals and in this particular case, the dancing uh, of the studio era and uh, seeing facets and certain things that you might not have seen before uh, when you were looking at it in, through these specific lenses, a lot of this, ooh, first-time stuff that is that that would invoke that nostalgia, but at the same time kind of go, oh, wow, that looks so cool, is stuff that we've had access to for 25 or more years. And it's been on every DVD release. It's been on every Blu-ray release. It's been online. It's been on uh, various TV shows and various behind-the-scenes things that are available in all sorts of other formats. And so for us, we actually have kind of been like, oh, well, yeah, we've had the 
we've seen the the behind the scenes we've seen the making of we've seen the history behind we've seen all these things and i think it colored their perception in 1985 to go hey wow nobody's ever seen this before and how cool is that and then you have people who were of that generation and previous generations going man look at that nostalgia trip i wonder what it would have been like if we could have seen it in the movie and so i really think that's the tack that it's uh that it takes and while i can understand their point of view from that lens uh, i like you i'm kind of like eh, yeah i'm glad it was cut you know <laughs> and, and again though i think i do i think that's kind of the fatal flaw of watching these now is we don't get to have we get to appreciate it from a historical perspective we get to appreciate it from the trying to understand the viewpoint of Jack Haley Jr., of uh, of um, Gene Kelly, right, of the presenters and stuff, and looking at what they chose for us to, to, to present, or what they chose to present for us. That's the value of these for us now, but there's a lot of there there's a lot in the aspects of these movies, and it really does show in that's dancing that says it's kind of it's kind of old and it's kind of dated it's kind of over and i think that while culturally they were showing the relevance of dance they weren't showing the relevance of dance in entertainment anymore and i think when they leaned into like showing fame at the beginning when they discussed um like you'd mentioned with mtv and they're saying with like the thriller music video that was being shown um, in front of movies on movie screens and stuff like that, it was really kind of showing the death throes of not the evolution of dance and entertainment, but kind of the death throes of dance and entertainment, at least for that time period. Um, so from then on, it would be kind of a novelty thing. I think people would just kind of appreciate it uh, when it was done well as a novelty aspect i mean think the drew carey show from the 90s uh he opened up his second season with uh with a really cool dance routine and that was really well done and well received and people had a lot of fun with it and that kind of became a little opening spiel and then he evolved that one more time in the series with the cleveland rocks thing so you could see again just novelty aspects but can you really think of any truly great dance films beyond 1989? Uh, Chicago was good. To, okay, so it took... And, and again... Newsies. People love the Newsies. i never seen it, but... Which is, but and again, that was a musical. So it's like you have these kind of niche things, novelty things that are throwbacks to a previous era... But nothing that would, nothing that you would be able to say definitively. Oh yeah, this kept dancing alive in movies. It didn't. Um, and 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 I and I think in some ways that's okay, and in some ways, it's, of course, it's a, damn, it's a damn shame. Yeah, I don't know. But this is still this particular one is still my favorite. I I actually loved it enough, despite its, um, d- despite its terrible that's dancing theme song. <laughs> Um, which, yeah, I, I made it through the opening credits, but did not listen to that song again in the closing credits. 
I, yeah, I, I would still give this one a five. It's m- by far my favorite movie. It's It really is. It really is a very good film. The last thing I want to say, I enjoyed the focus on dancing. You know, They did a very entertaining, but streamlined, very streamlined, but it's still very entertaining, uh, job at showcasing dancing in film with mapping out the evolution of dancing in the movies from like early vaudeville up until 1985. And again, they even talk about Saturday Night Fever, fame, flash dance, MTV music videos, and even breakdancing. And one takeaway, I mean, there's more than one takeaway, but something that, that really sat with me after watching this is how amazing... It is to see one performer commanding a stage. Because when a performer appears alone on stage, regardless if they're doing erotic dancing, (laughs) tap dancing, jazz dancing, whatever, they have to command that stage. And they have to take advantage of the entire space. Danny Kay proves this. Fred Astaire proves this. Eleanor Powell proves this. Ann Miller proves this. Up until uh, John Travolta in Saturday, Night, in Saturday Night Fever. Granted, there's people surrounding him, but he's like the only person on that dance floor dancing, and he is commanding the dance floor. And that is super important when you're making a film about a dancer, and they do have that dancing. They have to be good, or it's not going to matter. I I enjoyed it too. I'm really glad uh, we were able to watch this one along with the uh, two or three other That's Entertainment flicks. I just wish I owned a copy of That's Dancing. I had to rent it from Amazon Prime. Unfortunately, my Blu-rays didn't come with That's Dancing. It wasn't worthy enough. Or maybe, maybe the other three That's Entertainments were jealous of That's Dancing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But the, yeah, so I guess um, that that's my only one-upsmanship for these Blu-rays because um, while I did get a lot of special features in my DVD set, I know I'm missing at least one Really good special feature from That's Entertainment 3, which we'll talk about next week. Um, but at least I have the DVD and it's got like, it's got a buttload. It's got like a whole section of special features with like 11 different featurettes and a special introduction by Jack Haley and, uh, Gene Kelly and stuff like that. So, uh, damn it. I was, I'm, I'm glad I got my DVD set combo. <laughs> Anyway, all right, cool. Well, then, uh, yeah, so that's going to be the end of this one here uh, of of our series uh, for That's Dancing. And then we'll, of course, come back next week and close out the That's Entertainment series with That's Entertainment 3 from 1994. And I guess that does bring us down to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's a cutting Chomp the one to help, chomp. Don't get the hell. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains anyhow.
listening to as always has been brought to us by music partners cries of solace you can check them out at reverbnation.com and facebook.com both slash cries of solace as for us we of course the sls cast you can find us at slscast.com you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can follow us on twitter at the sls cast you can follow me this is matt on twitter at nitwit12345 you can of course come aboard the information superhighway and track down tim on twitter if that's your heart's desire and as always you can subscribe to us on itunes and our favorite us on stitcher radio as well as track us down on other platforms and podcast directories and of course if you would like to support the show head on over to patreon.com and check us out over there and so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to mikhail barishnikov i get to say this the more injuries you get the smarter you get take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week madam perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you and I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>